just going to go to prayer and then we'll continue to feast on His Word. Lord, we're thankful for the body of Christ. We're thankful for all the spiritual gifts that You have given to us. And for how every member, each part, plays its role and fulfills its purpose and completes its function for the building up of the body of Christ. But Lord, we're especially thankful for Your Word and the ministry of Your Word as we gather together on the Lord's Day. And we know how glorious it is to have the Scripture opened and explained and applied to our hearts and our lives. So we're so grateful for the Word of God. And we pray that as a church we would do everything in an orderly manner. You're not a God of confusion, you're a God of order and peace. And I pray that as a church we would continue to function in an orderly fashion. That all things would be done for edification, the building up of the body of Christ, the spiritual growth of each member, that all of us may come to reflect the image of our Creator. But we're thankful for the church, Lord. We're thankful that You have ordained the local church. We're thankful that You've given us specific instructions in the Scripture on how we are to function as a church. We don't make this up as we go. And just as we would never go into someone else's house and rearrange their furniture according to our liking, so we are not to do in the household of God. You are the one that determines how the church functions. And we faithfully submit to Your Word and what Your Word says about that. And we're thankful that the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God is central when we gather as a church. Lord, we know how desperately we need to hear from heaven. So many opinions, so much, so much, uh, so many ideologies, so many thoughts at our fingertips on the internet and on the TV, and so many ways that uh, the world brings in their ideas. But Lord, we're thankful that we have Your truth. We're thankful that we have a word from God, a word from heaven. And it is our joy as a church to dig deeply into that well of Scripture and draw deeply from it for our spiritual nourishment, refreshment, and edification. And Father, this morning our hope is that our worship would be acceptable in Your sight. We have sung Your praises and will continue to do so throughout the service. We have sought You in prayer as we are doing now. We've heard the Word read. We're going to have it preached and we're going to take the Lord's Supper and spend time with your people in fellowship, and we pray that you would bless all of this, these various means of grace that you've given to us by which we may grow in grace. And we pray you would bless our worship. We pray you would bless our hearing of the Word. We pray that you would sanctify our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we pray, Lord, that our church would be a light in the darkness in this dark place, this dark community. We pray that the gospel would go forth from here and that people would be saved, brought into the kingdom of God, and that Christ would reign supreme in the hearts of His people. Well, that's our prayer. So now as we open the Word of God, as we seek to hear from You, we pray for understanding as always. We know, Lord, we cannot understand Your Word lest You give us the ability to comprehend its truths. And so we pray that You would do that this morning. We pray that the Word of God would be applied to our hearts. We pray that our minds would be open to grasp its meaning that we would know what it says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies to us, and that you would give us power in the Spirit to live these truths out for your glory. And it's to that end we pray all these things. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, we'll be yet again in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, making our way into chapter 3 this morning. 1 John chapter 2, the passage that we will be looking at this morning is the one we started to look at Last time, and that's chapter 2, verse 29, all the way to chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, 29 to chapter 3, verse 3. And as you already know, John's theme is that of Christian assurance. That's the theme of 1 John. John wrote the letter in refutation of a group of false teachers who had come to Asia Minor and were seeking to deceive these dear saints there, these churches there. They wanted to lead them astray move them away from the truth, and cause them to embrace error. Now, they were preaching a different Christ, a false Christ, another Christ, one who was not fully God nor fully man. They were denying the, the gospel. If Jesus wasn't a man, He couldn't die for our sins. So they denied the gospel. They denied the work of Christ. They denied substitutionary atonement. They denied the necessity of holiness, the centrality of love. And in a word, they presented a false version, a counterfeit version of Christianity. That's the dangerous form of false teaching, the one that comes under the guise of Christianity. 
The dangerous form of false teaching is the one that goes out from the so-called church. People drive by say, hey, that's a church. They have their Bibles open. They must be Christians. They must be telling us the truth. But in reality, they secretly introduce their errors. That's what was happening in Asia Minor. The believers there were disturbed. They heard the apostolic word. They believed that word. Uh, A group of people had been converted there. And then a group had left the church and said, no, we've actually been enlightened. We have the real truth now, the real Christian truth. And this, of course, was disturbing to these dear saints. So John, he wanted them to be able to distinguish between truth and error. And to do that, he wrote a book, a letter, an epistle, as a series of tests by which a believer can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. It is a series of tests by which we can determine a true believer from a false believer, an imposter. In fact, the key verse is found in chapter 5, verse 13. John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote the book to believers to give them assurance of eternal life. And as we know, nothing could be more important than that. Nothing can be more important than knowing with absolute certainty that you're going to go to heaven when you die. None of us want to stand before Christ having lived our whole lives thinking we were headed for heaven, headed for glory, only to hear those words, I never knew you. No no one wants that to be the case. So John's epistle then is very relevant for us. I don't know what the statistics are precisely, but somewhere between 70 to 80% of people in America claim to be Christians. We understand that that was the case. Abortion wouldn't be prevalent. LGBTQ ideology wouldn't be running rampant. We wouldn't have so much unrest in our country if people were really loving God and obeying His Word. Clearly, something is wrong. And so John's Word to us is as relevant now as it was in the first century. So John gives a threefold test. Doctrinal, moral, social. Believing the truth, obeying the truth, loving the truth. That is what marks a true Christian. And that is basically John's message. He just keeps cycling through these same tests over and over again, repeatedly going through the same material, but going deeper each time, providing a fresh perspective. We are currently in the second cycle. The first cycle started in chapter 1, verse 1, went all the way to chapter 2, verse 17. Cycle 2 began in chapter 2, verse 18. And John began cycle 2 the way he started cycle 1, with the doctrinal test, the Christological test, a proper view of Christ. That's where it begins. A true Christian is one who believes in the biblical Jesus. The biblical Jesus. And so he started there in verses 18 to 28 by exposing the Antichrist and then telling believers how they are to respond to these Antichrists, namely by abiding in the truth about Jesus. Abiding in the truth about Jesus. But having done that now, starting in verse 29 of chapter 2 and going all the way through chapter 3, John transitions from the doctrinal test back to the moral test. This is part 2 of the moral test. Let's read our text together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 through chapter 3, verse 3. John writes, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Just a brief cursory reading through the text kind of reveals its theme, what it's all about. If you look at the end of verse 29 of chapter 2, you find the words, born of Him, born of Him. Verse 1 of chapter 3, we would be called children of God and such we are. Verse 2, beloved, now we are children of God. This is a passage about being the children of God, about Christian sonship, Christian sonship. Last week I told you that one dominant pervasive lie that is believed by our secular and even worse, even our evangelical culture today, is the lie that everyone is a child of God. 
everyone is a spiritual child of God. We're all God's children, they say. But biblically, that's not true. That's not the case. Everyone is not a spiritual child of God. We understand that God is Father within the Trinity. He is the Father of Christ. We understand that God is. there is a general sense in which God is the Father of all creation because He is the Creator of all. But spiritually, salvifically, redemptively, God is Father only to believers, only to true Christians. In that sense, if you're not a child of God, then that only leaves one other option, one category. You're a child of the devil. Child of the devil. You see, we become sons of God through the Son of God. We become sons of God through faith in and union with Christ, who is the true Son of God. Outside of Him, there is no true spiritual sonship for anyone. To be brought into the family of God is to be both born into the family of God and adopted into the family of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a privilege. That is a a glorious privilege that is possessed only by believers, only by true Christians. The reality is not all people are children of God. In John chapter 8, as Jesus was dealing with the unbelieving Pharisees, He told them plainly, you are of your father the devil. You are of your father the devil. So much for the popular seeker-friendly messages of our Lord, huh? You're of your father, the devil. John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, right here in verse 10, John says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Those are the two categories. Those are the two categories. Children of God, children of the devil. And the difference, John says, is very obvious. So if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. And in light of that fact, it is absolutely essential for us to be able to determine if we are truly the children of God. Are we really God's children? We need to know our identity and our responsibility as the children of God. So the question then today, brothers and sisters, is are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? Of course, everyone thinks they are. Everyone lives their life thinking, of course I'm a child of God. But the Bible tells us there is objective tests objective tests by which we can determine if we are truly in the faith or not. And we must take these tests seriously. So are you a child of God? How can you know? How can you know? How can we know if we're the children of God? What is it that even motivated God to make us His children in the first place? What's the result of being the children of God? What is our responsibility as the children of God? John's going to answer these questions in our passage this morning by presenting four aspects of Christian sonship. Four aspects of Christian sonship. We see the evidence of our sonship, the result, a motive of our sonship, the result of our sonship, and then the, the uh, responsibility. So we have the evidence, the motive, the result, and the responsibility. We looked at the first two last time. In verse 29 of chapter 2, we saw the evidence of our sonship. The proof that we are God's children. John wrote this in verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. That's just a logical statement. It follows logically. If you know that Christ is righteous, that Christ is good, that Christ is holy, that Christ obeys God's Word, obeys God's law, then it just consequently follows that if you are born of God in Christ, you also practice righteousness. You do that, which is right. We're born of Him. We possess His nature. Like any true child possesses the genes of His Father. So God has imparted to us His own righteous character in regeneration, the new birth, and we manifest that reality. We manifest that new nature through doing that, which is right, practicing righteousness. Let me bring it down a little bit. Let me make it very simple. Very simple. If your life is not changed, you are not a Christian. If your life is not different now than it was before, you are not saved. You are not a child of God. If your life is still marked by nonstop, ongoing, habitual, unrepentant sin, you are not converted, you are not headed for heaven, you're on the broad road to destruction, headed for hell. And what a dreadful road that is. A road of self-deception. The evidence 
that you really belong to God, that you're really a child of God, is that your life is now changed. You're now different. You practice righteousness. Righteousness. So that's the evidence. That's the evidence of our sonship. Anyone claiming to be a child of God while living in constant rebellion against Him is a self-deceived liar. A liar. John says that over and over again throughout his first letter. But that's the evidence. But secondly, last week, we also saw the motive of our sonship. The motive. What is it that motivated God to make us sinful, evil rebels His children? What moved God to do that? The answer, His love. His love. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. John says, look, marvel. Look, consider, meditate on the great, infinite, otherworldly, unparalleled love of God. A love so great that it would take those who are in rebellion against Him, save them, change them, and bring them into His own family. God loves us. We should think about that often, consistently, daily, weekly. Our mind should be set upon the great love the Father has for us. God was not moved by anything outside of Himself. He was not moved by anything in us. There was no inherent worth in us, value in us, merit in us. God was moved to make us His children simply by the good pleasure of His will and His love and His sovereign grace. And out of His love, He's transferred us out of Satan's family into His family. God loves us. So that's the evidence and the motive of our sonship. We looked at those last time. But this morning, we now come to the last two aspects of our sonship, namely the result and the responsibility. The result and the responsibility. And as I said last week, my hope as we consider these last few aspects of our sonship in Christ is that you would come to have a greater understanding of and a greater appreciation for your identity as a child of God. So with all of that said, let's move on to number three this morning. Number three, the third aspect of our sonship that John highlights here is the result of our sonship. The result. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1. After saying, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. He then adds, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. The world does not know us. There's really three statements here that have to be, or three parts to this statement that have to be considered. The heart of it is simply this the world does not know us. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, the world does not know us. The question is why? Why does the world not know us? That's where the other parts of the statement come in. The first part of the statement, for this reason. The second part, or the third part, because it did not know him. For this reason, because it did not know Him. So that first part here, for this reason. The world doesn't know us for this reason. Now the question is, does that point back to what John just said, or does it point forward to what he's about to say? In other words, does the world not know us because we're children of God and such we are, or does it not know us because it did not know Him? The answer obviously is both. Both. The world doesn't know us because we are God's children, and as God's children, we are becoming like Him And since the world did not know Him, it does not know us. The world does not know us. Now what in the world does that mean? That the world does not know us. You say, you know, we we live in the world, don't we? We eat the food of the world. We have jobs in the world. We go to school in the world. We have friends in the world. We know people in the world. We would even say they know us. They know our names. They perhaps know our address. We have them over for dinner. So how can John say that the world does not know us? know us. What does he mean? Well, the word world here obviously refers to unbelievers. Unbelievers. It's the Greek word cosmos. We've seen it before. The basic meaning of the word is an order or system of things. And as always, it's going to be, the meaning of it's going to be determined by the context in which it is used. The context. For instance, back in chapter 2, verse 2, John used that word with reference to God's elect in the world. He said, Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the world. That is, God's elect all over the world. In verses 15-17 through 17 in chapter 2, 
John uses that word to refer to the evil system in the world, ruled by sin and Satan, the evil system of the world. He tells us, do not love the cosmos. Do not love the world. That is, the evil system of the world. But then John uses it here in chapter 3 with reference to unconverted people, unregenerate people, unbelievers who are bound up and caught up in this evil, wicked system. Non-believers who love and belong to the world. John says they don't know us. They don't know us. The word gnosko, the word know there, has the idea of knowing through personal experience, understanding. John is saying they don't understand us. They experience us, they relate with us, and they don't get it. They don't get us. They just can't comprehend us. Why? Why? Because they didn't know Him, and we're becoming like Him. We're becoming like Christ. You see, the world looks at us, and it just doesn't get it. Why why don't you accept LGBTQ ideology? Why don't you accept abortion as women's rights and health care? Why don't you do that? Why, Why... are you not okay with pornography? Why are you not okay with drunkenness and immorality? What's, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why do, I don't get it. Why do you waste your Sunday coming to church and listening to this guy speak for an hour and almost fall half asleep and have to wake back up? Why do you do that? Why do you waste your Sunday doing it? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you do these things? The world doesn't get it. They don't get it. And they don't get us because they didn't get Christ. We're becoming like Him. We're being made like Him. We're reflecting the character of our Savior, the character of our Father as His children, and therefore the world doesn't get us. Turn with me for just a moment to John chapter 15. John 15, that's the Gospel of John. Fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 15. As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and ascend back to the Father, He's preparing the disciples for what is to come. He's trying to comfort their hearts. And that's what we find Him doing here in John chapter 15. So John 15, starting in verse 18. Verse 18. This is Jesus speaking, and He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated Me before it hated you. The world hated Christ. We get that, right? People sometimes say, you know, if you were like Jesus, you wouldn't have people angry with you. If you preached more like Jesus, people wouldn't be upset with you. That's obviously not the case. Jesus was hated by the world. Why? John 7, 7. Because I testify that its deeds are evil. The world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. They hated Him because His deeds were righteous, theirs were wicked. His life contradicted their life. It exposed their hypocrisy. The world hated Him. Look at verse 19. 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Look, if they hate Christ, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. But because you're not of the world, He says, they don't love you. If you were of the world, they would, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. If you were of the world, if you belonged to it, if you loved what they loved, you esteemed what they esteemed, valued what they valued, you would be loved by them, accepted by them, understood by them. But because you do not, the world doesn't get it. The world doesn't understand us. Verse 20 now. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. They don't know God, they don't understand Christ, and therefore they do not understand those who bear His image, who represent Him, who belong to Him, who are becoming like Him. They don't get us. Go to chapter 16 now. Chapter 16, verse 2. John adds this. Again, Jesus speaking. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. Why? Why? Verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or Me. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. They don't understand Him. And therefore, they don't understand those made in His 
image. They seek to kill us, they hate us, they persecute us, they despise us because they don't know us. Back to verse 1 John 3 now. So this is what John is saying. This is what John is saying. The world doesn't get us because it didn't get him and we're becoming like him. Simple enough, right? We're becoming like Christ, therefore the world doesn't get us. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, As He is, so also are we in this world. He was hated by the world, misunderstood by the world, not comprehended by the world, and that is the way it is with true believers. The world doesn't get it. 1 Peter 4 puts it this way, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In other words, you've had enough time in your unconverted life, you've had enough time living like the world, living in sin, living like pagans. But now, now that you're a Christian, it's time to make a break with that, put those things off, and walk in newness of life. And when you do that, verse 4 says, in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. That is to say, Gentiles, pagans, heathens, non-believers, unbelievers, they are stunned that you no longer live like them. If you're a Christian and have been for any time at all, you might have people like that from your past. They were your friends. You're running people. You hung out with them. You did what they did. Then you were converted. Things changed and maybe you didn't have that kind of friendship with them anymore. They didn't get it. Why didn't you want to keep going out getting drunk on Friday night? Why do, you, why do you not want to continue to engage in immorality? Why, why, what changed? What's different? I don't get it. In fact, they're so shocked, they hate us. They malign us. They just don't get it. They don't get it. So that's the way it is. The world doesn't know you if you're a child of God because you're becoming like your Father. You're becoming like God and like Christ. John chapter 1, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. That's it. Christ was not known by the world. They did not comprehend His identity as the Son of God, and so they do not comprehend our identity as the children of God. John MacArthur put it this way, The real aliens in the world are not extraterrestrials, but Christians. Having been born again, giving a new nature of heavenly origin, Christians display a nature and lifestyle like their Savior and Heavenly Father, a nature totally foreign to the unsaved. That's exactly right. We have a new nature. We practice new things, a new life, righteousness, becoming like God, and therefore the world does not know us. But there is another reason the world doesn't know us. And it's because the full revelation of our identity as the children of God has yet to be revealed. The full revelation of our identity as the children of God has yet to be revealed. Look at verse 2. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Yet again, John starts with that term of endearment, that term beloved. Beloved. My beloved brothers and sisters. My beloved flock. Those to whom I love. Now we are children of God. Of God. It's as if he's trying to comfort their hearts by reassuring them that the false teachers are not the children of God. We are. We are God's people. We are God's children, not them. They have it wrong. You have the truth. You're God's true children. Right now, at this very moment, you are a child of God. And as the children of God, John says, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. The word appeared there, the Greek word phanerao, means to make known, make visible, make manifest. John is saying what you will be is not what you are now. Your full identity as a child of God is not fully manifest, not fully made known right now. What we are now is not what we will be. We will be changed. The fullness of our sonship is not a reality at this very moment. But at the end of verse 2, John gives us the good news. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. 
We bear the image of Christ now, but not in its fullness. We are sons of God now, but don't experience the complete reality of that. We're not yet perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. We're not perfectly like our Savior. That awaits the end. That's the second coming, when Christ comes and makes us perfectly like Him. Again, the word appears used of Christ. Phanarao, when Christ is made manifest, we will be made manifest in the fullness of our glory. It's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will be revealed with Him in glory. That is to say, the fullness of your life as a child of God, of your identity, right now is hidden, not seen, because it's hidden with Christ in God, but when He comes again in His glory, you will be seen in the fullness of your glory. The fullness of your sonship. But that fullness isn't a reality yet. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul's going to make a similar statement there. Romans chapter 8. So far in Romans, up to this point, Paul has explained the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is to say that we are made right with God, not by works, not by law, not by legalism, but by faith alone and Christ alone. Because He died in our place, He took the wrath of God, paid the penalty, we're now clothed in His righteousness. Faith alone. In chapter 6, he described the doctrine of sanctification. That believers are not only freed from sin's penalty, but also sin's power, and are becoming living in newness of life as new creatures. But now in chapter 8, John, trans, uh, John kind of transfers from justification and sanctification. He transitions to the doctrine of glorification. Glorification. That is, freedom from sin's presence. Look at Romans 8, starting in verse 19. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, God's creation, all of the universe, is longing for the full revelation of our identity as God's children. Our future glory. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I don't have to tell you this. Creation is under a curse. We get that. It's under a curse. What Paul here calls futility. It's devastated by sickness and pain and hard work and death and judgment. It is a earth inhabited by evil people who destroy creation, who hate the Creator, But there's coming a day when the earth will be glorified and the earth, the curse will be removed and the earth will be fully inhabited by perfected, glorified children of God. That is what creation longs for. We won't have to worry about which presidential candidate we'll pick then. We'll have the Lord Himself reigning on His throne and we'll have a perfect world and we'll be perfected children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The earth is like a a mother in labor. It hurts now. It's painful now, but it'll be worth it then when everything is transformed. 23, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. I thought we already were sons of God. I thought, are, are we waiting on our adoption as sons, or are we sons? Didn't John just say, we are children of God and such we are now? So which is it? Are we sons of God, or are we waiting on our adoption? What's the answer? Yes. Both. Both. Already, not yet. That's the answer. We are children of God, but the fullness of our sonship is not yet a reality. The fullness of it is the redemption of our bodies. When our bodies are freed from the very presence of sin, they're perfected and glorified and fit for the new heavens and the new earth. We get that. There's a final stage to the adoption. You know, sometimes people adopt children. They take them into the home. They start the process. The kids are already there, but it's not complete yet. The paperwork's not all finished. The whole process isn't over. But then it finally finishes. The final stage is complete and the adoption 
has come to a consummation. That's how it is with us. We're already children of God. The process has already begun. We're adopted. We're born of God. We're being transformed into His image. But we are yet waiting the consummation of our adoption. The final stage when we are made perfectly like Christ. Romans 8.29 says we are predestined to become like Christ. To be conformed to the image of God's Son. That happens both now imperfectly, progressively, increasingly in sanctification, and it will be brought to consummation perfectly hereafter at our glorification. But we are destined to be like Christ. So John says when He appears, we will be like Him. We will be like Him. Philippians 3 says that Christ will transform the body of our humble condition into conformity with the body of His glory. That is the great future hope of the Christian. We are going to be transformed into the image of His glory. And then we will experience the fullness of our sonship. So what you have then is that sonship is about being made like our Father. We are being made like Him now. We are children now. But the perfection of that waits the second coming when our Lord is revealed. But then when He comes, brothers and sisters, we are going to have a perfected Christ-like body. And what is that body going to be like? What's that perfected, glorified, Christ-like body going to be like? Some of you here today are thinking, yeah, I'm aching right now. I'm, I'm interested in this new body thing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll answer that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul has been writing this letter to deal with a series of problems in the Corinthian church. Very troubled church. Makes our church look like angelic host. They had immorality in the church. They had division in the church. They had an abuse of spiritual gifts. An abuse of Christian liberty. You get to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with a doctrinal problem. Some heretics were denying the resurrection. Some of the believers at Corinth were denying the reality of the resurrection. That was popular in Greek philosophy. And some of the Corinthians had been seduced by that. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul deals with it. Go to verse 35. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. Paul's going to answer some objections to the resurrection. He says, But someone will say, How were the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? In other words, the objection goes something like this. Okay, Paul, there's a resurrection. You're crazy. Why don't you tell us what it's going to be like? Why don't you describe this resurrection for us? And that's exactly what Paul does in verses 36 to 49, and he provides a glorious treatise on the doctrine of the resurrection. Look at verse 36. Paul says, You fool! You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That's how it works. You take a seed, you throw it on the ground, it dies and sprouts up a beautiful crop. Verse 37, And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. You know, you throw the seed on the ground, it doesn't prop up looking like a giant seed. The body that it is when you plant it is not what it is at the end result, when the crop sprouts up. So it is in the resurrection. The body we have now is not like the body that we're going to have hereafter. Verse 38, But God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. In other words, just as there are stars that are different, just as there are different kinds of flesh among creatures, so it is in the resurrection. Our body now is going to be different from our body at the resurrection. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That's the glory of this. You now have a body that is perishable, subject to sin and pain and death. One day you're going to have a body that is imperishable, that is completely free from all death, all curse, all pain, all affliction, and you will be perfected. Isn't that glorious? You may ache today, 
You may deal with physical maladies and disabilities today, but brothers and sisters, one day you will not any longer. You will be perfected and you will reign in glory. That's the good news. There's a natural body, a spiritual body. Verse 45, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Then you go down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Our body's like Adam's now. It's going to be like the second Adam's then, the resurrected Christ. We're going to be made perfect like Jesus. No more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, a perfected body. I'll be able to probably use a hammer then. I'll, I'll be perfected. We'll all be perfected in glory. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's the hope of the Christian. Christ doesn't say suffer now and you know, who knows what will happen later. Suffer now, glory later. That's the route. Jesus suffered. He was glorified. We suffer. We're glorified. That's the Christian path. Go back to 1 John now. All of this happens, John says, when He appears, then we will be like Him. We will be like Him. And it's because we will see Him just as He is, the verse, in the verse 2 says. We're going to be like Christ because we're going to see Christ. John Piper says, beholding is becoming. We see Christ, we become like Him. The whole of our salvation, by the way, is dependent upon this, seeing Christ. Conversion, justification, sanctification. The whole of your Christian life is about looking to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 says, we're blinded by sin, but then God opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ. That's conversion. That's what happens. You go from being blind to the glory of Jesus, you hate Him, or you're apathetic toward Him, then you behold Him in His glory and you love Him and you want Him. That's conversion. 2 Corinthians 3, same thing with sanctification. We are being transformed into His image as we behold His glory, He says. As we behold Christ. And where do we behold Christ? Where do we see His glory? In the Scripture. So as we behold Christ in His Word, we become like Him. That's sanctification. And here in 1 John, John says even our glorification is about seeing Him. We will become like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We're going to see Him. We're going to see Him. We see Him now with the eyes of our heart, with the eye of faith. We're going to see Him then with the eyes of our head. We're going to have glorified eyeballs and able to behold the fullness of the glory of the Savior. John Owen said that's the whole purpose. We're going to have new eyeballs for one purpose, to see Christ. To see Christ. The Old Testament saints also had this hope, by the way. They knew that there would be a day in which they would see God. In Psalm 17.15, David said, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. David knew it. David knew that one day he would be resurrected and he would see the glory of God. Job is another Old Testament saint who had that hope. In Job chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, he said this, Even after my skin is destroyed... Yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Job knew it. Job didn't have any Bible, by the way. But God had somehow divinely revealed it to Job that he would be resurrected, and in his resurrected flesh he would see the face of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, The pure in heart shall see God. That's our hope. We're going to see Him one day in His glory with our eyes. That's the great hope. So that's, that's the hope of the Christian. We behold Him, we become like Him. Now in sanctification, hereafter in glorification. And that is the result of being a child of God. Becoming like Jesus. We are like Him, the world doesn't get us, and they won't get us, because the fullness of that sonship awaits the second coming. That's the result. Christ likeness. But fourthly and finally, John presents to us the responsibility of our sonship. Look at verse 3 now. Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. John is saying, look, our sonship is more than a privilege. It carries responsibility. It has duty. We have job, a job to do. It has ethical and moral implications. 
Being a child of God will drive us to morality, to purity. He says everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone. Everyone. Any person who's really hoping in Christ will pursue this purity. This Christ-likeness. The word purifies there. And purity, it's the word hagnizo. Hagnizo, it means to cleanse from defilement. To clean up. Anyone whose hope is on Christ cleans himself up. Removes sin from his life. Hates sin. Fights sin. Pursues holiness. Pursues obedience. Pursues Christ-likeness. And he does it because his hope is fixed on Christ. The hope, of course, is the hope of the second coming, the hope of being made like Christ perfectly, the hope of the consummation of our sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's what Paul in Romans 5.2 calls our blessed hope of of the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior. It's the hope of the glory of God, Scripture says. It's the hope that we'll see Him and be like Him. And if you have that hope, you will seek purity as He is pure. You will seek to be like Christ. This means that Christ's likeness, sanctification, is not only the result of our sonship, it is the responsibility. Responsibility. It's kind of the great paradox of the Christian faith. If you're a child of God, God will make you like Christ. And yet it is your responsibility to pursue Christ's likeness. This isn't let go, let God. I'll just kind of be passive. God will do all the work. God will make me like Christ. God does the work in your heart. He gives you the means of grace. He gives you the Spirit. He gives you new affections, new desires. Now you have to act upon all of that. And in the Spirit's power, you have to pursue Christ's likeness. It is the believer's responsibility. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul, after giving those great promises of being the children of God, the sons and daughters of God, He then says this, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Clean yourself up, he says, in the Spirit's power. Press on to be like Jesus, to be like Christ. That's what we do. 1 John 2, 6 says, All who are in Him must walk as He walked. Live like Him. Be like Him. Hebrews tells us, pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. If you're not growing in holiness now, you're not going to see Him in His glory and His kingdom then. You're going to be judged and cast away into hell. True believers pursue Christ's likeness. And we have confidence before Him. Back to what He said in verse 29 of chapter 28 of chapter 2. We have confidence before Him at His coming. Why? Because we pursue righteousness. We pursue purity. Because His grace in our hearts. All of that leads us to be confident that we belong to Him and confident when He returns. The only one that has confidence before the retur- at the return of Christ is the one whose life is being brought to conformity to His image. The one who is seeking to live like Christ. Everyone who is a true believer does that. Everyone. And because our hope is fixed on Him. Friends, is that where your hope is this morning? Is your hope fixed on Christ? If your hope is on the world, and you love the things of the world, the evil system of the world, you're not going to be like Christ. If you're just a worldly, carnal Christian, a false convert who just kind of is molded up in the world, conformed to the world while professing to be a Christian. If you're a true believer, your hope is fixed not on the things of the world, but in the glory of Christ and the salvation in Christ, then you will seek to be like Him now. We're going to be made like Him hereafter, and we know it because we long to be like Him right now. Is that where your hope is, brothers and sisters? If it is, it will have a purifying impact on your life. So the evidence of our sonship, righteousness. Righteousness. The motive of our sonship, the love of God. The result of our sonship, Christ-likeness. The responsibility of our sonship, sanctification. The pursuit of Christ-likeness. So what do we do in light of this passage? Let me give you a few points of application. First of all, we need to examine ourselves. Examine yourself in light of this passage. Is your life characterized by sin or righteousness? If it's marked by sin, you are not a believer. You are not a child of God. If it's marked by righteousness, then you can have confidence that you are. And if you're not a child of God, 
what you do is you repent, you call upon the name of the Lord, and you will find Him to be a faithful Savior who will save all of those who faithfully call upon Him. But secondly, we continue to pursue Christ's likeness. How do we do that? We read our Bibles. We pray. We go to church. We fellowship with God's people. We attend the means of grace. You will not become like Christ if you neglect the means of grace. You will not become more and more like Christ if you don't read your Bible. You will not become more and more like Christ if you don't seek His face in prayer. You won't. You will not become like Christ if you don't come to church and you're not a part of a local church. You're going to stunt your growth. So we have to pursue Christ's likeness. Behold His glory and we'll become like Him. But thirdly, thirdly, delight in the love of God. Delight in the love of God. God loves you. God has made you His child by out of love. We should spend time daily considering the love that God has for us. Often we see God as wrathful to us, but as believers, that's not the case. As believers, God loves us, has made us His own, and will see us to glory. But finally, fix your hope on the second coming. Do what Peter says, and fix your hope entirely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't live for this life, but the next. Don't live for this evil system of the world. Live for Christ and the manifestation of His glory and His kingdom. And if you do that, you will be made like Christ. So brothers and sisters, after examining yourself, are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? If so, fix your hope on Him. Pursue Him. Become like Him. And know that one day you will be brought to perfect glory. And in that, we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for who we are in Christ as children of God, as sons and daughters of God. We're thankful that it's a reality that You are making us like Christ, but also it's our duty to become like Christ. And so I pray that each of us in here this morning would pursue that we would seek to reflect our Savior. We know the world won't get us. They'll hate us. They'll reject us. They'll despise us because we don't embrace their evil ideologies and behavior and their evil philosophies. We reject that as children of God. And so the world rejects us. But we know that one day the world will be completely rid of all those who hate you. And we, the meek, shall inherit the glorified earth. And we long for that, Lord. So thank you for making us your children. We know the world, again, it doesn't get it. We, we don't go to work and people say, hey, there's, there's a child of God there. But we know that's who we are because your word tells us that. Because your work in our hearts proves us to be that. Your word is true. Everything it says is true. And we'll take you at your word, Lord. So help us to set our hope on Christ. Help us to fix our eyes upon the second coming. And in light of that hope, in light of that reality, may we pursue purity as Christ is pure. Please do these things, we pray, for your glory. Amen.